being admitted to the profession of veterinary medicine, I solemnly swear to use my scientific knowledge and skills for the benefit of society through the protection of animal health and welfare, the prevention and relief of animal suffering, the conservation of animal resources, the promotion of public health, and the advancement of medical knowledge. I will practice my profession conscientiously, with dignity, and in keeping with the principles of veterinary medical ethics. I accept as a lifelong obligation the continual improvement of my professional knowledge and competence. Welcome to Have You Heard. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the Executive Director of AABP. And this month, there were many veterinary students that graduated and took that oath, just as we all did, who practiced this noble profession. And I can think of no better way for us to make sure that we are relieving animal suffering than to make sure that all of our clients have euthanasia protocols in place that are humane and follow our AABP guidelines for humane euthanasia, which was recently revised by our Animal Welfare Committee and approved by our Board of Directors. In this episode of Have You Heard, I am joined by guests from our Animal Welfare Committee, Dr. Liz Brock, the Vice Chair, Dr. Megan Hain, the Chair, and Dr. Brett Boyum. We are going to walk through the Humane Euthanasia Guidelines step-by-step, discuss appropriate euthanasia, timely euthanasia, and the role that each one of you has as the veterinarian of record for your client operations to ensure the proper protocols in place so caretakers can be informed and educated about how to end suffering for those patients that require timely and appropriate euthanasia. Stay tuned for more information. All right, I want to welcome all of our guests to our show today to talk about this topic. Uh, and we're going to start off with Dr. Brett Boyum. Brett, go ahead and introduce yourself, please. Hi there. My name is Brett Boyum. Uh, I am a 2014 graduate from the University of Minnesota. I was in private practice in Minnesota for three years. And uh, five years ago now, I have joined Riverview LLP, so we're a dairy and beef farm with farms in Minnesota, South Dakota. Nebraska, New Mexico, and Arizona, and I serve as a staff veterinarian with them. Thank you. And our next guest is Dr. Liz Brock. Liz? Hi there. Happy to be here. I am a Cornell uh, 2015 grad. I was in private bovine practice for five years in northern Vermont and uh, now work at the University of New Hampshire as a clinical faculty member teaching undergrad annual science. And I serve on the ABP Board of Directors. I'm the District 1 Director, so New England and New York, and am the Vice Chair for the Animal Welfare Committee. Thanks, Liz. And finally, we have Dr. Megan Hain. Megan? Thanks so much. Um, So my name is Megan Hain. I am a 2004 graduate of Ohio State University um, and had 13 years of uh, food, animal, and mixed practice in Pennsylvania before uh, three years in uh, the University of Pennsylvania and that, and now I'm working in uh, industry as an animal welfare specialist in that for a dairy cooperative in Wisconsin. And currently I hold the chair position for the AABP Welfare Committee. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining the podcast, and we are going to talk about a very important resource document uh, that AABP has developed, uh, and that is uh, we recently revised our AABP Humane Euthanasia of Cattle Guidelines, and we're going to start off with Liz since she's uh, the board representative here for the AABP board. So about 10 years ago, uh, when Dr. Nigel Cook and Dr. Brian Gerloff were on the executive committee, the AABP board decided to develop guidelines that demonstrate our organization's position on a variety of topics and procedures that are relevant to bovine practice. And these are used um, quite frequently 
by allied groups and, and uh, such as the Farm Program, uh, the Beef Quality Assurance Program, uh, the CCQA Program. So they are utilized by others. And and Liz, let's talk a little bit about how our organization uh, develops and then also reviews these guidelines. The uh, guidelines um, are really member-driven. So new guidelines are developed either by a standing committee or a task force on authorization from the board. And often the, the notion behind a new guideline comes from a member request or a member concern. Once those guidelines are written, we have a set process to review these guidelines every three to five years. So all of our current guidelines are open for review by the president uh, in about a three to five year uh, window. And current AABP members are invited to submit comments um, about the guideline. Um, Those comments are uh, compiled and sent to the relevant committees. So in this case, when we were reviewing the euthanasia guidelines, the comments from members went to the Animal Welfare Committee. The committee has the opportunity to make one of three decisions. They can renew the guideline without changes. They can rescind the guideline, which essentially means that it's withdrawn because it's no longer relevant or it's redundant to other newer guidelines that we've created, or we can review and modify. Uh, once the committee finalizes that document, it goes to the board for approval and um, subsequent posting onto the ABP website. Yeah, and it it is a very defined process. Uh, Liz, being on the board, you can recognize that it takes some time uh, for these things and that uh, inefficiency sometimes is necessary to make sure that these uh, guidelines are really given careful thought and deliberation, especially one as important as this. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, uh, and this will include this guideline eventually, is that the AABP board has also uh, developed a task force to translate some of our uh, guidelines that are more relevant to caretakers on farms into Spanish. Uh, that's uh, part of some of our DEI initiatives. And so we do have several on our website right now that have been translated into Spanish. And this one uh, will be translated into Spanish in the future as well. So check those out under the About menu of the website. And we'll include some links to this guideline in our show notes. I want to dig into the guideline now, and we're going to kind of walk through it as a group. But let's start off, Megan, and just define euthanasia for us. It's a term that we use often, but we need to think about what that actually means. Absolutely. So, I mean, at its simplest uh, sort of definition, it essentially means just a good death. But um, when we're talking about it sort of in these guidelines, it means the ending of an individual animal's life sort of in a way that eliminates pain and distress. And when we do this properly, the euthanasia will result in a rapid loss of consciousness, followed by cardiac arrest and respiratory arrest and death. Yeah, it is so important for all of us uh, veterinarians to make sure that we are giving uh, the animals that need euthanasia a good death. And uh, that is the purpose of our guideline, a humane euthanasia. So, Liz, let's start off and talk about some indications for euthanasia of cattle. And then that decision-making process, and I like to look at it as, you know, nobody likes to, you know, uh, euthanize animals that we care for, even though it's a necessary part of our job and caretaker's job. And sometimes we just need to give permission to those caretakers to perform it. Walk us through some of that. Sure. There are really a wide variety of indications when euthanasia is the best action for the welfare of the animal. And that's really what we're aiming for here. Uh, This can include things like injuries and disease from which the animal can't recover, like uh, leg fractures or incurable diseases like rabies or cancer. Uh, Euthanasia is often the best solution also for animals with Uh, chronic illness um, that prevent the animal from being healthy enough to be put in the food chain for human consumption. Um, It should also be considered as part of the care of non-ambulatory or downed cows when, as Megan said, pain and distress can't be adequately managed on the farm or if the prognosis for healing that animal is grave. 
And just as you said, Fred, the decision-making process is a really key feature because euthanasia is not the first choice solution in most cases. And it, it's a really difficult thing to ask our employees to do. The biggest factor to consider when making this decision is really the ability to control pain and distress in the animal depending on its condition. We want to be sure that any injured or ill animal is in an environment that can support its return to health and reduce pain in the process. The likelihood or uh, of return of health or the ability to get an animal to safe, safely to slaughter is another prognostic indicator that we can use to make the decision to euthanize. Um, several practitioners have created decision trees to help guide employees through this process and a subgroup of the Animal Welfare Committee at AABP is working on this task as well to sort of help make these tough decisions a little bit easier uh, to know that we're always making the choice when it's in the best interest of the animal. Yeah, and great point, Liz. That's further work that the Animal Welfare Committee is doing to develop resources that our members can use on farms to help caretakers make those decisions. And Brett, you're a staff veterinarian for a large dairy. Uh, let's talk about timeliness. How do you manage that? And, you know, because I think that that's something that there's opportunity for improvement on many uh, operations, the timeliness of euthanasia. How can veterinarians promote uh, caretakers performing euthanasia in a more timely manner? Yeah, absolutely. That is one area that I think all of us could continue to make improvements around in terms of once we actually make the decision around euthanasia, then it's the, the proverbial clock starts because mm-hmm. ultimately at that point, we know the animal's not going to come back to health. And the best thing for them is, is to have a good death, is to have euthanasia done you know, appropriately as we would like to see. And so the guideline would be up to four hours once you make the decision and, and then um, the act of euthanasia needs to be done within that point. I personally think that's more than generous. And so on our farm, we, we target to have once that decision is made 15 minutes uh, and because that's about how long that euthanasia process takes uh, to just go get all the, you know, the sedation and the, the in our case, captive bolt gun. Um, and so I think veterinarians can be involved with helping educate their clients around really how do we, what is the expectation here? Is it feasible? I think it comes down to who's performing the task, uh, what is the actual um, process looking like, and that varies widely by farm by farm. Um, And so I think it, it is coordinating it within each particular client situations. And I think as veterinarians, we need to advocate for that to be as fast as possible. One sort of story that I came back thinking about this topic uh, back in practice, I was at an OB in the morning um, at a farm. We had made the decision that another cow that I happened to see uh, for toxic mastitis wasn't going to get better, couldn't call her. The decision to made was uh, euthanize that individual. I came back that same evening for another call. Uh, one of those lucky days where you get to go to the same farm multiple times and the cow still was not euthanized. And I think that was really opening, eye-opening to me to see like, hey, once this decision is needed done, we need to make sure that it gets done as quick as possible. And and unfortunately, not no one likes doing it. And so we just need to really help advocate and educate our, our clients and others around us on making sure that gets done as quickly as possible, at least within four hours from decision. And I would ideally say as, as quick as possible after that decision is made. Yeah. Good point. And, and we do need to always advocate for the cow. And when we do that, we are advocating for our clients, protecting them. Uh, and, and so really I think timeliness is something that every veterinarian can have discussions with uh, farm staff on. So keep that in mind uh, when you're visiting farms today. Liz, let's talk about, you know, there's several options for humane euthanasia. So what are some considerations that veterinarians and owners should use when determining the method will be employed for that different farm? Because um, there's a variety of options, and sometimes we might need to have a couple of options in place. Absolutely. The I think the number one consideration for any method selection really needs to be human safety. 
Um, it's people on the farm that are going to have to carry out this task. And we need to ensure that they are safe at all times uh, while they're doing this thing that we're asking them to do in the welfare of the animal. So some of the considerations that we factor in and are in the guidelines um, for members to review are things like the ability to restrain the animal, uh, the training and ability of the employee to use the method that we're asking them to use, um, the practicality of using a particular tool on a particular operation with a particular class of animals. So as you said, Fred, you know, maybe we have multiple methods based on whether we're euthanizing calves or euthanizing adult animals. Maybe different tools are gonna be more appropriate in different scenarios. Second to human safety is really animal welfare as a consideration. As Megan described at the beginning, the goal of euthanasia is a rapid death with no discernible pain or distress to the animal. And this has to guide the choice of euthanasia um, and often educates against some methods, which we'll talk about later. Um, the last sort of consideration in a big group of considerations is the practicalities of both diagnostic sampling, if necessary, and carcass disposal, which, again, we'll talk about further. But uh, both of those are really important when selecting a euthanasia method. Uh, obviously, for example, if rabies is tested, rabies testing is required, you're going to drive that's going to drive a particular method of euthanasia. Um, and again, later, we'll consider some considerations for carcass disposal that might also drive those decisions. Um, but really, I think at its forefront, when we think about methods, we need to think about human safety and human ability to do the job that we're asking. Yeah, and I really think, you know, uh, I think AABP always advocates for the veterinarian of record. And that person is really uh, needs to have those conversations with the owners, farm management and caretakers to walk through those things, because this is not a cookie cutter, one size fits all uh, type of situation. And so uh, the veterinarian Working with the farm staff can help to guide them on the methods that would be appropriate for that farm. Megan, let's talk a little bit about primary and secondary methods. That's talked about in the guideline. What what does that mean? Absolutely. So that sort of comes down to a nuance of some of the different methods in that of euthanasia. Um, so we talked about sort of in the beginning that Key parts um, of a euthanasia that we're looking for is a rapid loss of consciousness, followed by a loss of cardiovascular and res respiratory function, followed by death. In some of our methods of euthanasia, um, say a gunshot, um, you know, those often happen very close together. You know, so then we only really have a primary method of euthanasia because we get unconsciousness, which is that key key sort of beginning of it, and that a loss of consciousness followed by sort of uh, cardiovascular, respiratory uh, uh, depression and that and death, sort of following that. Some of the methods that we'll talk about when we're looking at um, sort of different methods that are recommended in these guidelines and that are kind of two parts. So um, we look at the induction of unconsciousness first. Um, we can be looking at either using um, penetrating captive bolt uh, as a way to induce unconsciousness, and we're looking for full unconsciousness, followed by um, a secondary method. And the secondary method ensures that cardiovascular, respiratory failure, and death. Um, some of our secondary methods where we're using sort of injectables and that as a secondary, we need to have the unconsciousness first, but then the secondary method, um, like mag uh, magnesium sulfate, uh, potassium chloride, and that, those are going to be considered secondary methods. So it's a sort of two-part in that um, euthanasia in those cases. So they're kind of nuanced uh, definitions in that, but they're more dependent on the method that we're using and whether it, um, it just induces both of those unconsciousness um, and then loss of, of sort of cardiovascular respiratory function death altogether or whether it's in a two-stage. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I want to walk through with Liz the primary methods of euthanasia that are approved by the AABP guidelines as a follow-up to what Megan just said. And I think this is important because, um, you know, if you look at the farm program and some other audit certification type programs, the euthanasia has to comply with AABP and or AVMA guidelines. And so, if farms are not euthanizing, using the primary and or secondary methods that are outlined, 
then it's not approved. And so it's very specific. So Liz, please walk us through what are the approved primary methods of euthanasia in the AABP guidelines? There are only three primary methods recommended by the ABP guidelines. Um, they include gunshots, penetrative ca- penetrating captive bolt, and barbiturates or barbiturate derivatives. Uh, all three methods, as Megan described, are achieving that rapid unconsciousness, and two of the three also result in, in quick death. Um, the penetrating captive bolt requires a secondary method to secure death following uh, rapid unconsciousness. The guidelines go into great detail about the location of both gunshot and penetrative captain bolt to ensure that uh, adequate penetration into the brain. Um, there are also lots of specifics in there related to the types of weapons, the calipers of um, projectiles that are best employed in this use. Uh, most importantly, as we talked about earlier, in terms of selecting the most appropriate methods uh, on a particular cattle operation, Human safety really needs to be prioritized, and only employees that are properly trained should be using any of these methods. Um, but I think we'll go into a little bit more detail on some of these secondary methods. Those are the three, as Fred put so eloquently when we started, uh, gunshot, captive bolt, or drugs. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Liz. And and I do want to follow up with what Liz said. Uh, I encourage everyone to Read these guidelines uh, because we do have a lot of detail about placement, uh, muzzle velocity, lots of different things in there. And there's some really nice diagrams in there that you can use uh, um, when you're doing training on farms. Let's move into secondary steps, Brett. What are the secondary methods of euthanasia approved by AABP in the guidelines? And I want you to talk a little bit about the pull shot because that's new in our guidelines as an approved secondary method. And I believe this is a method that you use uh, in your uh, um, uh, role with Riverview. Uh, describe that a little bit and, and the research that was published in the Bovine Practitioner on that method, and that is why we have that in our uh, new guideline. Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, the secondary method, we're really talking about you've made the decision to use a penetrating, penetrating captive bolt gun as your primary, and now you've got options again once you've narrowed down that cone of three, we've got options to do a secondary method, and that would be exsanguination, so a, a cut to the jugular and carotid arteries to get rapid blood loss, similar to how they're doing that in the slaughter plants. You know, that would be an option to secure that that rapid loss of you know heartbeat, respiration, and, and death. Pithing, uh, again, you can have your initial shot and then pith the brain with a pithing rod or, or some sort of device like that to, to secure pithing. Again, both of those options, when we're looking at sort of worker comfort and and um, reliably being done, not that they're tasks that are hard, but unfortunately they're kind of, kind of rudimentary, gruesome, if you will, tasks that those are the reasons that we don't pr- pursue them on our farm is because it's, it's a cleaner um, a more effective process. When I learned how to euthanize an animal in vet school with a captive bolt gun, we pithed, and it's just a process I personally don't like doing. And I have a hard time asking someone else to do something that I don't like doing. And so that's what's led us um, into the secondary shot. That's the method that we do that I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then the other um, secondary options you would have would be potassium chloride injection or magnesium sulfate or magnesium chloride injection. And the reason we land on a secondary shot as our secondary method um, is, again, I think human safety is probably the most important. If we go look at doing some sort of cutting um, needle sticks, pithing, and, and now we have an animal that is unconscious and, and can be having you know sporadic movements, I think we put our our caretakers at potential risks for injuries, cuts, needle sticks, things along those lines. And so we want to in our farm, we've we've selected that to be the secondary shot. And so then you have two options again is to refire in the frontal sinus, like where you would put the front. So, again, the the primary captive bolt gun position should be in the frontal sinus, like in the diagram, um, draw the line between the outsides of the 
the eyes up to the horns, make the cross, and go slightly above that. That would be your primary location. Then your secondary location could be either there again, or the new guideline would say the just behind the the protuberance and the, the pole, you would be able to put that location there. Our um, experience and why our farm had been doing that for, for a while, um, 10 years probably before this guideline had been updated, was because our caretakers felt like, and we felt um, sort of anecdotally, that we had better, you could kind of physically see brain matter leave the primary hole, then you knew you had for sure good concussion um, in that secondary shot. But more importantly, it also, we felt we could get into a safer position to secure in the back of the of the pole. Nonetheless, that was sort of our reason. And as you mentioned earlier, Fred, the reason we kind of start per, started pursuing this harder a, a couple of years ago is was through the farm audit. The interpretation of that guideline was that all pole shots, whether um, secondary or not, uh, as a secondary shot was not allowed. And so our farm <coughs> status and ability to sell milk was on the line. And so in the effort of either retraining all of our individuals that would be trained annually or or, or as appropriately as needed to, to conduct proper euthanasia, we made the decision of, hey, you know what, I think this would be good for the industry, good for veterinarians to have an understanding of, is there equivalency between the frontal sinus and the pole shot when we consider the secondary shot method. And so that that paper, as you mentioned, is published in the, the bovine practitioner. If someone wants to go and read it more th th uh, in detail, um, but that would be the sort of discussion around secondary methods of, okay, am I going to am I going to exsanguinate, pith, inject another chemical, or sh or give the animal another shot? And so those would be the four options when it comes to secondary methods. Our experience has been since we already have the captive bolt gun. A secondary shot seems to make the most sense. And if you're starting from scratch, you can decide a second shot in the in the frontal sinus or a second shot in the pole uh, would seem to be equivalent from from their time to death, which is about seven minutes or so from from the time the second shot is completed until we get heartbeat um, stopping. And that would be what it, what was published in our paper there. Yeah, I really appreciate those comments, Brent, and the practicality of how you are uh, training uh, caretakers on that farm to uh, perform humane euthanasia. And I really appreciate that grassroots research when when Brett called me and and uh, we walk through you know uh, uh, their farm audit, you know, and I said publish some research, and so they did, and and uh, that definitely uh, drove some of the revisions that the Animal Welfare Committee did uh, in this current guideline. So appreciate that. And if you uh, are on a farm and, and you see things that you think that would be good for our membership, would encourage you to consider uh, doing a published study uh, and submitting it to the bovine practitioner so we can remain relevant for practicing veterinarians. Thanks, Brett, for those comments. Megan, you know, I think another thing that is very important for veterinarians to understand in order to make sure that we're communicating to owners and caretakers is that sedation is not general anesthesia. And uh, alpha-2 agonist, you know, Brett said that they utilized that uh, prior to captive bolt uh, on their farm, but that is not general anesthesia. And so if we're talking like a secondary step that he mentioned with a, with a, a cardiotoxic agent like a saturated salt, uh, just giving xylazine is not appropriate. Uh, how should that be communicated? Absolutely, Fred. And uh, I think the key here is sort of understanding both um, sort of the pharmacology uh, and understanding, you know, how, how it sort of translates in the field, you know, and who's best to do that than sort of veterinarians. So I think, you know, when we're looking at agents like, you know, alpha-2s and that, you know, xylazine and that, we use those sort of widely, you know, in the field as a sedative, you know, and our goal when we're using a sedative is to take away a little bit of that distress, you know. Um, so they're absolutely sort of very useful tools 
when we're looking at using them for exactly that, just as a sedative, decreasing distress a little bit in that ahead of, say, a captive bolt and that, you know, taking away a little bit of the reactiveness of an animal to make them safer to work around. But when we think about how we use alpha-2s in the field and that, we're not going to be doing general surgery under an alpha-2. And I think when we're looking at this question of what do we need to use to induce unconsciousness, you know, that being our sort of first step when we're looking at, um, you know, some of the sort of secondary methods is that the animal has to be unconscious first. And the reason we need that unconsciousness is like a lot of those secondary methods can be quite painful or quite distressing. So, um, you know, your, your uh, sort of magnesium sulfate and that, you know, can cause significant discomfort sort of going through in the intravenous system, you know, causing, um, you know, using potassium chloride and that can cause quite a lot of distress and that and pain in the chest and the heart. Um, you know, so these are both things that without uh, full unconsciousness and that can be opposite of what we're looking to do with the euthanasia, which is minimize pain and distress. You know, they can both definitely cause pain and distress. Even looking at things like sort of exsanguination, you know, as a secondary method can be very distressing, you know, in an animal that's sort of conscious in that. So when we're thinking about sort of alpha twos and their usefulness as a tool, they're good to take away that little bit of distress, but they do not cause enough of a plane of anesthesia to do something painful, you know, and a lot of our secondary methods are going to be painful, like we would be doing a surgery. So think about it as the fact of what sort of plane are we looking for, for surgery, um, sort of in the field and that, and that's what we're looking for in that for this. And I, you know, we're looking for that full plane um, of anesthesia where they're not going to respond to any painful stimuli and that where they're not going to be feeling any of that. So, um, alpha twos are, are not going to give us that plane of anesthesia that is considered acceptable, full unconsciousness, and that for secondary methods. Yeah, thank you for that. Very important for everyone to make sure that farms are not using alpha two agonists and calling that anesthesia. So let's make sure that we're all on the same page there, Brett. I want to. I want you to talk a little bit about the importance of confirmation of death. What caretakers should be trained to do to confirm death, but also talk a little bit about unconsciousness because, you know, if if you perform enough euthanasias and you do a frontal sinus shot, you know, sometimes that may not uh, render the animal unconscious immediately. So, and before the secondary step is administered, especially if you're using like a saturated salt solution or exsanguination or pithing or something like that, they have to be unconscious. So how would you train, how would you recommend veterinarians train caretakers to confirm unconsciousness and confirm death? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is, can't be understated to be able to do the, the first step, whatever it is, um, correctly, you know, your primary method, uh, correctly so that you've got unconsciousness again, looking at the, at the captive penetrating captive bolt gun. Um, this is where we're going to need to be doing that, um, primary and then secondary step. And in that point, it takes approximately 30 seconds to just do a quick, uh, corneal reflex check. You can do a gag check, uh, gag reflex. You can look at rhythmic respiration. You should not have any sort of rhythmic respiration happening um, when that animal is effectively in an unconscious state. And so uh, our farms would be looking at um, corneal reflex as the primary uh, lack of consciousness sign. Um, and then further down if they've got sort of questions. But once we get the absence of that corneal reflex, we go right into sort of our secondary step of secondary shot again as i mentioned our case and i think and i think that is ultimately going back to human safety worker safety as you mentioned we we sedate all of our animals uh, with a alpha 2 agonist with xylazine prior to captive bolt euthanasia and i think that just removes the stress for the animal it makes the 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 task of euthanasia a little less stressful for the the caretakers as well and so i would highly as Megan was mentioning earlier, highly recommend some level of sedation prior to euthanasia. I think it just makes the experience better all around. Um, and once we do have effective uh, euthanasia, effective death, 
absolutely important to confirm that. It does take some time for that heartbeat to stop. Think about five to seven minutes, could be longer, um, but uh, typically seven to seven minutes or so should be a, a, about the time that you would expect to see no further heartbeat action. And so training on farm staff, um, grab a stethoscope. You can, it, it is, it is, takes a little bit of training because you do want to move that animal. So ideally post euthanasia, you can have access to the left side of the body. Um, so you got to plan a little bit in he- ahead of time, but if you can have a, a protocol um, in place and keeping that animal upright just makes makes for the whole process to go a little bit better if you just kind of think through, hey, I need to sculpt this animal at the end of the day uh, prior to uh, the next step, whether it's rendering or whatever that might be. We do need to have confirmation of death. I find it easiest for us to, to lack of heartbeat um, and, and then we're done with that process. So it is a quick check of unconsciousness followed by that secondary step. And then last but not least, confirm lack of heartbeat. You could check for lack of respiration as well. But I think once we know the heart has stopped, um, any other movement beyond that would be voluntary. And we have have done our job as veterinarians and caretakers to provide that animal with a, a good death and, and proper euthanasia. Yes, very important. Don't walk away from that animal and then come back uh, a significant amount of time later to find out that they that 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 she did not expire, that the, there was not uh, a cardiorespiratory failure. So make sure that you're training caretakers to do what Brett just walked through. Thanks, Brett. Megan, as much as we hate to discuss it, inappropriate euthanasia methods should be discussed because we don't want them to happen. And so let's talk about, you know, uh, what are some unacceptable methods that listeners should be aware of? Yeah, um, definitely an unpalatable subject, but unfortunately we do see these occasionally, so we need to address them. So, I mean, one of the ones that we'll occasionally see or hear about is blunt force trauma and manual sort of blunt force trauma is not acceptable. Um, there is one little caveat with that in the fact that non-penetrating captive bolts are allowed in calves, so very small animals, and we're talking a proper, properly designed non-penetrating captive bolt that's designed specifically for, for um, sort of small animals and that, and calves will fall in that category, but manual blunt force trauma is, is not acceptable. Injection of any agent sort of um, in a live or conscious animal and that um, injection of any sort of disinfectants or anything like that is not acceptable. Um, They're not designed to um, cause euthanasia in that, not studied um, and not acceptable. And then we talked about sort of using sedatives as opposed to a full anesthetic prior to using um, sort of potassium chlorides and that. um, And that's it's not acceptable coming down to that sort of, you know, causing a good death. So we do not want to cause any pain or distress, and we know those agents can can cause distress in that in conscious animals. Drowning, um, sort of air embolism, so injecting air uh, sort of in the veins and that, certainly not acceptable in that. Um, and then uh, probably the last one would be uh, sort of electrocution. Not really feasible in a lot of our sort of cattle patients in that, but also something not not sort of acceptable. I suppose the only last one in that um, would be sort of exsanguination in a conscious animal. Um, and this one's a little tricky in that with some of the sort of halal um, and, and different slaughter methods, but that would not be something we'd consider an acceptable uh, uh, euthanasia method. So unconsciousness would be the prerequisite. Yes, good points. Difficult subject to talk about, but uh, uh, I'm sure that we are aware that, unfortunately, some of these things might occur, and education is important, and that's where you as veterinarians come into play, to speak for that cow and make sure that animals are being appropriately euthanized on your uh, client's farm operations. Megan, I want to follow up with that about carcass disposal. Um, you know, specifically with the use of pentobarbital, AABP, we've had a podcast on this, we've had uh, uh, messages in our newsletter uh, about, you know, the rendering industry and how they have found pentobarb contamination in rendered food products. 
this chemical seems to stick around in the environment forever uh, and, uh, you know, it poses a risk to wildlife if they're eating, uh, you know, the carrion and things like that. So pentobarb can be used. It's an approved method, but readers or listeners should be aware of the potential risks using pentobarb, but they could potentially use an alternative drug slash chemical euthanasia. Talk a little bit about that thought process. Absolutely. Um, and we started in the beginning talking the, the sort of big three, you know, so you can always go back to sort of gunshot, penetrating, catapult, and then that chemical one um, that we're sort of talking about. So a couple sort of alternate methods in that, um, you know, that we've talked about already is sort of anesthesia. Um, you know, so using a good field anesthesia, maybe a xylazine and ketamine combination, inducing full unconsciousness, so full plane of anesthesia, followed by, um, you know, concentrated or saturated solution of sort of mag- magnesium sulfate, um, potassium chloride. Um, another option, which we hadn't really talked too much about in that, that is a sort of newer option that's getting used sort of by veterinarians in the field and a um, a couple of papers and out, out on it is doing full anesthesia followed by intrathecal lidocaine. So essentially um, sort of causing a shutdown of the central nervous system in that with lidocaine sort of intrathecally. Of course, anytime we're using anesthetics in the secondary, you do have drug residues. So they're certainly not on the level um, of penobarbital, you know, in worrying about them being sort of a residual within the environment. But is is sort of veterinarians, um, especially veterinarians in the, the food animal field, being aware of the, the sort of drugs that are in that carcass and that um, and providing and recommending appropriate disposal so they do not end up sort of in the food chain. And that, you know, is definitely something to keep in mind. But not nearly um, on the level of, of sort of pentobarbital when it comes to residues. Yeah, and thank you for mentioning the intrathecal lidocaine. That is new in this revision of guidelines. Uh, and we're also going to uh, link uh, a couple of presentations or the one presentation that was a practice tip done by Dr. Renee Duell on how to perform uh, that procedure. We also have... Um, uh, a chart on our website uh, and our committee resources on the use of intrathecal lidocaine as well. Um, and so if you're an AABP member, you can go to our CE portal and listen to that practice tip uh, for, for using intrathecal lidocaine. And don't forget, like Megan said, those animals have to be under general anesthesia, not just sedation. So thanks for mentioning that, Megan. Brett, I want to close out uh, our podcast here because you know, I often think that veterinarians, we sometimes uh, lament that we're losing certain skills to uh, lay people or, you know, technologies and things like that. But I really think there's an opportunity here for veterinarians to be involved with appropriate training of caretakers and then also following up, monitoring compliance, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about your thoughts on, you know, what can veterinarians do uh, to be involved in this uh, on their uh, client operation. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're right. I think veterinary medicine today is certainly evolving and changing as it should be as our clients and our our farm needs change in especially in the bovine world. And and I think this particular piece as as welfare overall, whether whether it's through an audit or through an on farm initiative, etc. Um, become more important, more prevalent, more sort of scrutinized. This is absolutely an area where veterinarians can and rightfully should be involved in how to develop sort of this best process, whether it's a feed yard, whether it's a dairy, whether it's a calf ranch. There's, It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I do think, as I step back and look at it, training on-farm uh, caretakers to do proper euthanasia is probably the best thing for that animal. Most of the time, veterinarians or someone with an advanced veterinary degree is not going to be on the farm at all times when we have a broken leg or a traumatic injury or something, a chronic disease. I I think caretakers performing these processes correctly and with guidance of veterinarians is an absolute win-win for the industry and for the farm and caretakers and the, the care of those animals. So I think really breaking it into who's responsible 
who's going to make the decision? Is it going to be the owner? Is it going to be the caretaker that has the authority really helping guide the decision? Is this animal, back to what Liz was mentioning, should this animal be euthanized? Yes or no? Kind of work through that decision tree. And once that decision is made, who is actually going to perform the act? You know, it may be a handful of people. It may be everyone on the farm. It just really depends on the kind of the farm dynamic on who's going to make the decision and then what act and who's going to perform that act, whether it's a, a chemical gunshot or penetrating captive bolt gun. And so really trying to break that down and into sort of simple, um, understandable, logical steps so that at the end of the day, the process gets carried out correctly and effectively, effectively every time. And so once you do that, then it really comes down to compliance. And so compliance through regular training and sort of eliminating the the ignorance, if you will, around how to perform the process, whatever it is, correctly. And then new individuals as they're coming on, using that as a sort of a practice building opportunity to to provide that education to those care caretakers. Um, annually training at a minimum, and then sort of as often as needed, I think is really an area to get into compliance. And then after that is is sort of second, setting up records and evaluations looking at, okay, walking through the hospital pen when you're there, looking at placement, if it is a gunshot or a penetrating captive bolt gun, and you happen to see the the, the animals post-administration, um, you can physically go look at those the shot locations and just, hey, are we doing this correctly? And if not, that's a great opportunity to sort of retrain and re reinitiate how to continually improve that process. And just simple marking of was did this animal die naturally or was it sacrificed? And then looking at, hey, what's the percentage of natural deaths versus sacrifice? Because if we are sort of trailing, we look at 65 percent as sort of our, our threshold on our farm. If we have less than 65 percent, there is no science. I don't know of any science around what the right percentage is, but it seems like over half of our animals that are dying on our farm, if we're making that decision, guiding that decision, we're preventing pain and suffering. That's how we look at it. But I don't think we want to necessarily be at 100% either, because then we're probably being too aggressive and we're not giving animals enough time to recover and to provide that adequate care for recovery. So that's how we kind of break down how's the, who's going to perform the task, what's the task that we're actually going to do related to, resp to you know, responsible euthanasia, and then how do we look at documenting, training, and verifying those processes? Yeah, great points. Lots of opportunities for veterinarians there to improve the care of the animals uh, that, uh, that we care for every day. Liz, do you have any follow-up thoughts on that? Well, I just wanted to say more broadly that um, on behalf of the board, um, I want to give a really big thanks to, first of all, the team that initially wrote this guidance document. Um, this is one of the bigger, heftier guidance documents that AABP has. And, uh, you know, we were in a position recently to revise and revisions are always a little bit easier than creating from scratch. So big shout out to the folks that originally created this document. And then uh, a big thanks to the members of the Animal Welfare Committee that uh, did the Herculean effort of revising this. One of the things that hopefully is evident as members go take a look is we tried very much to adhere to the notion of evidence-based medicine and provided lots of references uh, to the science on the issues that we talked about today. Um, so just wanting to draw attention to that. Um, and then lastly, I just wanted to uh, always, always emphasize that much of the work of ABP do is done by members. Um, we have an amazing staff for sure, but they are small and mighty. But a lot of our work here at ABP do is done by members. And so anyone that's listening that would like to get more involved, um, I want to invite you to go to the ABP.org, click on the committees tab, uh, take a look at the options that are available. We have two brand new committees um, that you could get involved with and um, and join in the effort. We would love to have you. So Thanks to everyone involved in re revising this document and stay tuned for that decision tree. We're excited about that. Yeah, great thoughts, Liz, and I agree completely. You know, we 
We have 5,000 uh, members, uh, students, uh, veterinarians, and veterinary technicians, and it would be impossible for us to accomplish everything that we accomplish uh, without our dedicated volunteers. So I agree. Thank you to all of our volunteers, including the ones that were instrumental in revising these guidelines and our board. Uh, I want to thank our board for uh, walking through and, and continuing to send this back to the committee for clarification and continuing to work through it. It was a, it was a long process, but it certainly was worth it. I want to invite all of our listeners to please review the guidelines. As Liz mentioned, they're heavily uh, cited. There's about two page uh, of references at the end of the guidelines. Um, so, you know, Make sure that you walk through and understand all of them so you are aware of what is appropriate euthanasia. One of my favorite quotes by, is by one of the giants in our industry, Dr. Ken Nordland, who always used to say, who will speak for the cow? And I think it's our responsibility to always speak for the cow. And when we do that, we're helping our owners make sure that they are doing things appropriately, which is uh, necessary uh, today for a variety of reasons. It's the right thing to do, number one, but certainly as our industry comes under scrutiny, we always want to make sure that we're doing appropriate euthanasia on our farms. I want to challenge everyone that's listening today in your truck when you get out and you're on a farm. It doesn't matter if it's a cow-calf farm, a veal farm, a calf ranch, a dairy farm, a feedlot. Ask them, how are you performing euthanasia? What's your euthanasia protocol? Who's doing the euthanasia? How are you confirming death? Walk through that, as Brett had mentioned, uh, and make sure that we are doing appropriate and make sure that those caretakers are trained. Uh, asking a question, and, you know, we always wonder, how are we going to get paid for this? You're on the farm, so you're getting paid. So walk through those euthanasia protocols. I'm going to challenge everybody to do that today after you listen to this podcast. And then finally, uh, on behalf of Megan and Liz, if you're in Milwaukee, I want to invite anyone that is in Milwaukee to attend the Animal Welfare Committee meeting. It's not just for committee members. It's open for anybody uh, or any committee meeting. Uh, those are listed on our website. The uh, times of those committee meetings. Meetings will be 9 a.m. to 10:15 a.m. on Thursday, September 21st, in Milwaukee. And so, if you are at the meeting, attend the committee meetings and get involved with AABP. Thanks to all of you for joining the podcast today and for your work with AABP. Really appreciate it.